though I smile to myself and say nothing. Not long ago at court, Sidney had failed to show sufficient deference to some senior peer, who, in response, had called him the Queen's puppy before a room full of noblemen. Now, whenever Sidney walks through the galleries or the gardens at the royal palaces, he swears he can hear the sound of sarcastic yapping and whistles trailing after him. How he would love to be famed as an adventurer, rather than a lapdog to Elizabeth. I could almost pity him for it. Since the beginning of the summer, when the Queen finally decided to commit English troops to support the Protestants fighting the Spanish in the Low Countries, he has barely been able to contain his excitement at the thought of going to war. His uncle, the Earl of Leicester, is to lead the army, and Sidney had been given to believe he would have command of the forces garrisoned at Flushing. Then, at the last minute, the Queen havered, fearful of losing two of her favourites at once. Early in August, she withdrew the offer of Flushing and appointed another commander, insisting Sidney stay at court in her sight. He has begged her to consider his honour, but she laughs off his entreaties as if she finds them amusing, as if he is a child who wants to play at soldiers with the bigger boys. His pride is humiliated. At thirty he feels his best years are ebbing away, while he is confined at the Queen's whim to a woman's world of tapestries and velvet cushions. Now she sends him as an envoy to Plymouth, It is a long way from commanding a garrison, but even this brief escape from the court aboard the galleon has made him giddy with the prospect of freedom. I am less enthusiastic, though I am making an effort to hide this for Sidney's sake. Hopping from the wherry to the steps is close enough to the water for my liking. I reflect as I falter and flail towards the rope to keep my balance. My boots slip on each step, and I try not to look down to the slick brown river below. I swim well enough, uh, but I have been in the Thames by accident once before, and the smell of it could knock a man out before he strikes for shore. As to what floats beneath the surface, it is best not to stop and consider. At the top of the steps, I stand for a moment as our boatman ties up his craft and begins to labour up the steps with our bags. Uh, Mostly Sidney's bags, to be accurate. I have brought only one, with a few changes of linen and some writing materials. He has assured me we will not be gone longer than a fortnight, three weeks at most, as we accompany the galleon along the southern coast of England to Plymouth Harbour, where it, or she, will join the rest of Sir Francis Drake's fleet. Yet Sidney himself seems to have packed for a voyage to the other side of the world. His servants follow us in another wherry with the remainder of his luggage. I have not remarked on this. Instead, I watch my friend through narrowed eyes as he hails one of the crew with a cheery hello and gauges the man in conversation. The sailor points up at the ship. Sidney is nodding earnestly, arms folded. Is he up to something? I ask myself. 
He has been behaving very strangely for the past few weeks, ever since his falling out with the Queen, and I know well that it does not take a blow to his pride with good grace. For the time being, though, I have no choice but to follow him. Come, Bruno, he calls, imperious as ever, waving a lace-edged sleeve in the direction of the ship's gangplank. I bite down a smile. Sidney thinks he has dressed down for the voyage. Gone are the usual puffed sleeves and breeches. The peace god doublet that makes all Englishmen of fashion look as if they are expecting a child. But the jacket he has chosen is not much more suitable. Made of ivory silk, embroidered with delicate gold tracery and tiny seed pearls. His ruff, though not so extravagantly wide as usual,